are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. In this episode, we are talking about code and what benefits there are to making your code available in a peer review process and having it checked. My guest today is Stephen Eglin from the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge. Together with Daniel Nist from the University of Munster, he has created CodeCheck, an open science initiative to facilitate sharing of computer programs and results presented in scientific publications. Stephen Eglin, welcome to Open Science Talk. Thank you. Um, I've invited you here to talk about code in uh, science uh, because you have this, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a company or organization, but it's called CodeCheck. Uh, we'll get into that, but what is the problem with code in today's uh, science world? Um, so first of all, code is everywhere in most modern day science. Um, the volumes of data that people are having to analyze just means that it's necessary to work with computer programs to analyze those data sets. Um, and there are two problems. I think one is a cultural problem that certain fields have just not had a mentality of sharing. And that has extended to not, not sharing their code as, as with not sharing their data. And I would say in neuroscience, my fields, there hasn't been a good culture of sharing. Whereas in other fields, the ones I know of, like bioinformatics, there has been a much sort of more community-led uh, decision to sort of share resources, and that means data and, and now code. So certain fields are sharing and other fields are not. Um, so that's a cultural problem. The technical issues is that really code is written in a hurry to solve one problem. So it doesn't need to be well engineered and you know, really crafted. It's often not documented. And that's fine, right? Because everybody's busy. And why should you spend a long time trying to make something perfect that's never going to be used again? So I would say in science, there's a, a large volume of programs that are written for one very specific purpose that may not directly get reused again. And so they don't tend to, people say, well, it's not important to share them. But I think it's it's a rich resource that people can learn a lot from. And just even, even without running the code, just being able to look at the code allows you to understand so much more compared to the very compressed description you'll get in the method section of a paper. So, but do you think that um, not sharing uh, the reason for that is is that it's not pretty enough, or that it's not uh, it's embarrassing to to share it? So th there are lots of I would say there are lots of there are lots of reasons I've heard over the years for not sharing code, um, and it does range from that. Well, I, I'm very reluctant to share my code because what if you find a bug in my code? And then after I've published my paper, I'm going to be made to look an idiot or I have to retract my paper. Well, yeah, that's kind of unfortunate. But I think we need to get away from the view that anybody writes perfect code. Um, so you can't really just say, well, you know, rather than just hide the fact forever that I made a mistake, we should just be a lot more upfront about it. So there is that. 
other people sort of tend to use excuses like, well, you know, it's my competitive edge. You know, if I've spent three years writing this large suite of software, why should I just give it away? Um, it's my, you know, it's mine, and you know, I'm not, I'm not prepared to give it away to my competitors. So that argument is a little bit more delicate. Um, my response tends to be to that is, well, who is paying for the code to be written? If it's from the public purse, then I think the public have a right to see to see that code make uh, the light of day. Um, now that kind of moral argument works for some people and it doesn't for others. So I'm, you know, it's easy to avoid that one. So, so what is the challenge here when it comes to when when you have this uh, thought of code and and you're going into peer reviewing? Um, because as I understood you uh, correctly, um, uh, the problem is that the codes aren't checked necessarily when you're when you're doing a peer review. So, by I mean, over the over the 20 plus years that I've been peer reviewing, I've been reviewing a lot of probably most of the papers having have relied on computer programs. And for the vast majority of those papers, you don't even see that there's no there's no notion that the code might even be available privately through the peer review process or that publicly they've made it available. So there isn't that culture of saying, here's my code. You can look at it. Things are changing, thankfully, in some field. I think bioinformatics and computational biology that I know quite well are very good at this. Uh, astrophysics is a, is another example where there is now a culture that you know we should be sharing more of this. But even if the code and data were available to a peer reviewer at the time they're doing the scientific peer review of the paper, it's quite an ask to ask the reviewer to not just do the peer review on the scientific content of the paper, but then to go and check the scientific code. Because what does that really mean to check the code? You could be looking at, you know, just checking that, you know, roughly looks like it's doing the right thing, or does every equation in the paper correspond to the right lines in the, in the code? That's a huge task. And very few peer reviewers would actually do that. I've only had one example, I think, when I submitted a paper uh, in 2014, where much to my surprise and the editor's surprise, the uh, one of the peer reviewers, and it was a he, um, he signed his review, so I'll, I'll, I'll thank him publicly many times. This is uh, Christophe Pouzat in Paris. Um, when he was writing his review, he complained about not complained, he queried one of my figures, which is commonly what you do, right? You know, and as a peer review, you'll normally say, oh, well, I wouldn't do it like that. Change it, you know, change it. But because he had the code and the data, Christoph went, well, actually, you know, I can say that's how he should do it, but he's given me the code and the data, so I can do it. So in his review, he pasted in the code and uh, the code and the corresponding figure, how it should look. And that's what I then took pretty much verbatim and put into, into the paper. And that is, you know, it's a pleasant joy, but that is the exception rather than the rule. So code, code is not checked by default in most scientific papers when you have a scientific peer review. It's an interesting artifact, but the box is never opened really to examine what's in it. 
So uh, let's get into code check because this is kind of your solution to to uh, some of these issues, I guess. What is code check? So uh, code check is a system where we're proposing a very sort of light touch review of the contents of a code. So when an author submits a manuscript uh, for peer review, at some stage during the peer review process, what we're suggesting is that if the author has provided their data and their code and basically a readme that says, if you run this code, it should generate these particular research objects, PDFs or tables, um, we as code reviewers will then try and run that same code and see that we get PDFs and and uh, and the corresponding tables. So it's a very light touch check because we're not making a scientific judgment whether the figures that we generate are the same as the ones that are in the in the paper. They could be different for many reasons. Um, so. That would be a sort of a more sort of scientific peer review type question. So we're just saying, did this code work for someone other than the author, right? In an independent environment, did this work once for somebody else to generate similar kinds of objects? So this is what I would say a very low threshold to passing, right? So, uh, but, but, um, so there are some issues with that as well because you don't check necessarily the numbers or or uh, or if the how to fix the code. Uh, you just try to reproduce it we, once. We, we just we just try to say right. They've just told us these are the three steps to generate say two tables and a figure. So we we do those steps ourselves. One of the principles we have in CodeChecks in the CodeCheck system is that we believe we shouldn't investigate if there's a failure. If there's a failure, we report it back to the author, but we don't try and fix it ourselves. Yeah, why? Um, simply because, and experience will tell whether this is the right decision or not, um, but right now we feel that you're opening a whole can of worms. It's much easier just to say, no, it didn't work for me. Back at, you know, you're passing the tennis ball back over the net to say, you, you've got to fix this. Some things might be very easy to fix. So, for example, the author may have forgotten to say that you need some extra piece of software, some extra library, and they'd forgotten to mention it because it's on their machine, it's invisible, they didn't realize, they'd forgotten that it was a dependency. Whereas on my machine, if I don't have it, it immediately breaks. And in some cases, it may be very easy to find that missing dependency, but in other cases, it may take hours and hours. So we deliberately drew the line to say, CoCheck should do as little as possible. Partly also because of the time, the time commitments. We're regarding these code checkers as kind of similar to peer reviewers, and we all know how overstretched peer reviewers are. So it was a conscious decision to try and keep things as light touch as possible for the for the peer reviewers. Um, so uh, what is, you've talked earlier about? Uh, there's like a symbiosis that uh, authors get something back from this and publishers and uh, also CodeCheck, I guess. Um, so what does each individual in this system uh, get out of it? So certainly there's, there's, there's work to be done by various parties, but there's also benefits. So if we look at the work that needs to be done, the author needs to tidy up their code a bit to provide some clean instructions. 
uh, and ideally make it publicly available because then it's much easier for us to go into the mechanisms of sharing it. The code checker needs to spend time actually running the code and checking uh, checking the out the that things are working. There's a bit of work required from the publisher mediating this process, and then provide they've got the infrastructure to help sort of uh, populate various repositories like Orchid and Publons and Crossref with all the metadata that we want uh, to be associated with these uh, with these code check certificates. So that's the costs. The benefits are to several communities. First of all, the author themselves. So I think there's a selfish reason why the author would want to do this, which is that certainly even before submission of a paper to a journal, if this system can be run just directly between the author and the, the co-check, which is something that we'd like to do whilst it's scalable, the author can go already to a journal and at the time of submission say, hey, look, I've got a co-check certificate. This means all of my code has been validated. It's all available. Go fill your boots, right? So it looks valuable for the author. And they have confidence that they've wrapped up their code nicely. By contrast, if they leave it too late in the peer review process, it doesn't get done, or they find out the embarrassing thing, they made a mistake, they then have to tell the journal, oh, actually, I need to rewind. So it avoids, avoids mistakes. So the author benefits a lot. So there should be selfish reasons for that. The code checker, and we're imagining that most code checkers are likely to be early career researchers, they're going to be gaining a lot of experience looking at the latest technologies and how people are working in their particular scientific fields, running programs, and uh, they'll be involved in sort of the scientific review process, which I think will be helpful. They'll be writing these certificates, which we will deposit on places like Zenodo and should be citable. So they get a citation that, you know, in this new world of trying to give citation for other, thing, other things other than the traditional scientific paper, I think will be useful. The publisher benefits because they get the confidence that this bundled code set that they're publishing actually works as opposed to doesn't work. And I've seen examples, the good, the bad, and the ugly of how code is currently being shared by publishers. Um, so it's a bit of a wild west out there right now. Um, but then there are two additional groups who will also benefit uh, from, uh, from sharing this. One is the volume of readers reading the scientific article. When they look at the CoCheck certificate or when they read the paper and they see that there's a CoCheck certificate, they know they can immediately go download the code and the data and start experimenting with this code base as well themselves. The other potential group, the much smaller group that would benefit are peer reviewers. If a certificate is available whilst they're doing the peer review, because then they're completely absolved of even having to look at the code, right? So we're imagining different scenarios where some journals may say, we'll do code review at the time of submission, or we'll do it post peer review. So it may or may not be available for peer reviewers. So uh, you mentioned that um, PhD students and postdocs doing this kind of work. Uh, are you having uh, people already doing this work? So we, in a, uh, before Daniel and I got together in 2017 through the uh, International Neuroinformatics Coordinating Facility, we set up a, a sort of a forerunner to this project. Um, and we worked with a, 
I'll just say a leading scientific journal to try and do something like this. And for that process, we, we, we got about a dozen code reviewers prepared to do this. And actually, most of them were not early career researchers. They were established PIs, which gave me actually some, some heart that people were prepared to put some time into this. So I think we, we would imagine that, I mean, we're not yet at the stage of needing to develop that pool. Um, and again, depending on the journal, the journal may just dedicate this task of co-checking to one of their editorial staff, or they may prefer to try and find a few early career researchers. So we, we're going to play that one by ear and see how, how, it, how it goes. But I would imagine that, you know, through our contacts, we'd be able to find a few people just to get this to get this started. Mm. Uh, but uh, are you um, today limited by the different languages, uh, code languages? What are your criteria for doing these kinds of uh, checks? So, like most like most things, I think the technological solutions are mostly there. The main bottlenecks will be the human factors. Will people be interested to be potential authors in this? Will people be prepared to invest their time as a code reviewer? So those human factors are, are really the problem. Um, until a few weeks ago, we were pretty set on using this Docker container technology for ensuring that the code checker always had a nice clean environment for testing the software, which is essential for ensuring that you know exactly what components, what libraries need to be added to get a piece of code running. The problem with that was that it restricted us to using only free software. And that's a big limitation. Um, certainly in my field of neuroscience, the number one programming environment is MATLAB, which is not a free uh, piece of software. Um, so actually, uh, we've rejigged it slightly so that Docker is one of the options, but it doesn't have to be. So you can run it in a local environment. It just makes it a little bit more challenging to ensure that you've got all of the necessary libraries uh, documented. But in principle, as long as a code checker knows the language, because it helps to be able to read it, right, and just have a quick scan of it and just check. Um, as long as we've got code checkers who know the language, we should be okay. And nowadays, although that, you know, although there's this vast zoo of different languages, in different communities, there tends to be one or two very common solutions. So I think we won't hit the problem of having to, you know, if there's an obscure piece of code that nobody can really understand, we would push it back to the author and just say, look, we really have no idea how to compile this. You really need to give us more explicit instructions on compiling, for example. Um, so how easy is it to cheat the system? That's the beauty of Kojek. You can cheat it in so many ways, right? So there's the, there's the naughty ways of cheating it. So you could write a complex piece of software that just obscures the fact that you're storing the final outputs in your code bundle and then you just spit them out. So you're not doing the computation. You just you've you've hidden them somewhere, like you know, stenographically or somewhere in the in the, in the code bundle, and you just spit them out. So that's the naughty thing. Um, or there may be just more benign problems that people have provided intermediate data files, um, not realizing that actually 
probably people will want to see how those intermediate data files are generated. So there are lots of ways of cheating the system. We And again, this was a conscious decision. Why, you know, we don't have the energy to go into the thinking about how this could be, you know, foolproof. But the genius of our solution, I think, is we don't really care because it will be public. All of their code and data will be public. And my feeling is, is that you'll always find the interested early career researcher who will have the time to go through every single line and then find all of the flaws in the code and see where they've cheated and see where they've not. And then the author must, you know, be prepared to face those consequences because, the, you know, they've provided the code. So what we're saying is people are free to cheat, you know, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, if people indeed end up doing it. I personally doubt it. I think people just won't join in rather than trying to cheat the system. But then if they were, and again, it wouldn't be the job of the code checker because of the time constraints. But if that certificate is then available, and if it's then downloaded by interested end researchers, we would hope that any cheating would be would be revealed that way. So there's no incentive to cheat. So um, what is next for CodeCheck? So right now we're in the stage of talking with several editors about potential ways in which this system could be used, um, either in the abstract or in their specific workflows. Um, as I said, we've pretty much got the technology there. We had some great students working over the summer providing some examples, um, and those are now being sort of curated and, and written up. Um, so we'd always like some money. So if we can find another grant application to try and keep this going, uh, to actually help develop the workflows or to provide a full-time editor to do that, that would be incredibly helpful. Um, but we're, we're looking to wrap up the project next May with a paper summarizing what we've done and just saying, you know, here it is. We hope that, you know, this will be useful. And, you know, of course, it will all be open source. So any of the ideas that people want to take, great. And, you know, the, the bits they don't want, they'll just leave behind. So, you know, Daniel and I have had a lot of fun doing this project. And, uh, you know, uh, it's been great to hear the feedback here at Tromso about, uh, about the system. So I think there is some interest in it, and I hope it will sustain it over, you know, over the next couple of years. Even England, uh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. This podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Please go to opensciencetalk.com for more episodes or check out codecheck.org.uk. Thanks for listening.